Hello, Michelle here. There's something I need you to know about. It's called Australian True Crime Plus. For just a couple of dollars a month, you can get extra episodes, including Ask Us Anythings with Emily and I, early access to our weekly episodes, shout outs and the complete back catalogue and all of it ad free. You can become an Australian True Crime Plus member by hitting the link in the show notes or on our Facebook page. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to monday.com. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello, fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now, and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45, equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. The producers of this podcast recognise the traditional owners of the land on which it's recorded. They pay respect to the Aboriginal elders past, present and those emerging. The following podcast contains content of a graphic, violent nature and is not suitable for children. The information we've received is a little sketchy, but this is what we can tell you that the Customs Department has made the biggest ever haul of hashish in Australian history. Now, we understand that 1.9 tonnes, and that's an awful lot of hash, has been found in a camper van, a Mercedes-Benz camper van, which is at present in the possession of the Customs Department at their marine centre in Neutral Bay. There are stories that get under the skin of people, especially journalists. And this story you're going to hear about is unbelievable. And most of us have probably never heard about it. I know I hadn't. Enter author Sandy Logan, a former journalist and diplomat who followed this case of two older American women, Vera Toddy Hayes and Florice Beasy Bessire, who were arrested in Australia in the 1970s 
for having almost two tonnes of hashish concealed in a camper van. That's not personal use amounts, listeners. It's a wild and scandalous story, as you'll discover. But first, Sandy tells us about how we came across this extraordinary case. I was a journalist for, for 10 years, and in, in, as part of the, those 10 years, I spent a couple of years on the police desk in Toronto, in my hometown in Canada. And I was on a late shift one night in early 78, and, and on the late shift, I finished at 1 a.m., and, and one of the jobs was to check the wires and go over to the telex and pull it up and see if, you know, the Pope been shot or the president's dead huh? or, 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 you know, some late break. If there's late breaking news, we had to, we had to change page one. So one night I, or early morning, I happened to see a story about two elderly American women arrested in Sydney. This was the end of January 78. And uh, the fact that they had with them 1.9 tons of hashish, wow. clearly not for personal use, uh, attracted my interest. And I thought, wow, what a, what a story this must be. And, and I ripped off the telex, took that, stuffed it in my, my shirt pocket, I didn't think much more of it until 10 months later, the end of 78, near the end of 78, I returned to Australia, resumed working as a journalist back in Australia. And I thought, geez, I ought to see whatever happened to that story. You know, it's from that that, that, that the book was born. It's taken a while to get there, mm. but that was the, the start of that interest in the story and the start of the relationship. Taken a while to get there? You're not kidding. That's 40 years ago, Sandy. It, yeah, yeah. It's, it's 45 from when they first set out, in fact. So, yeah, yeah, it's a long time ago. Gosh. So, I mean, has it? I've got, we've got to ask, why has this story remained in your mind? There are very few news stories that remain in our imaginations for that long, let alone this one that was originally two lines that you tore off a machine. Uh, I can't believe you were still thinking about it 10 months later. I guess part of the, there are a number of reasons. One of the reasons was I I got so close, and I think we all know this as human beings, that when we get really close to a story, to an issue, to a challenge, to a a situation that that we become involved in, it, it can be difficult to detach oneself and look at it objectively and and you know in the in the cold uh, stark reality that that life is and and I was very close to them obviously and very close to this story so that was one of the the first challenges second by the time the women were released from jail they had been through so much as as you know as the story goes in the book betrayed you know they they survived riots they survived knife attacks they survived uh, breakouts and escapes happening around them, drug abuse, uh, the, the whole the whole slew of of, of experiences inside a prison, um, and when when they finally did get out, there was a there was a sense of we really need to move on, even though they had looked forward to being able to write this book themselves, to being able to tell their story, because they never felt they got a fair crack. And then the third reason why it was difficult in, in 83 when they got out of jail to, to actually tell this story was there were still some questions around their relationship. Oh. Were they or weren't they? Ah. And if they were, is this really a story we want to cover? And, and you know, to me, their relationship, I never queried. I never questioned. It was none of my business. And it didn't matter to me what the basis of the relationship was. This was this was part of the the, the, the tabloid media fury. Because looking at it now in 2020, I, that had never occurred to yeah, me that no. that was 
a question. So you're right. I we do need to look at it from the lens of, uh, you know, the times that these things happened. Yeah. Let's go back to the very beginning, if we may, sir. Starting with, could you please try and explain to us what does 1.5 tons of hash look like? It's bigger than an elephant. No. So you want to get an idea. If you can smoke an elephant, you're doing pretty good. I could at uni. I couldn't now. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> there, is a, there, there is an anecdote that I can share with you about what does two tons of hash look yeah. like? How, how much does it weigh? How, how does it affect the performance of a vehicle? That anecdote and language warning for children goes to um, an interview that one of the arresting then Federal Bureau of Narcotics agents conducted with the, the women. They were, they were arrested separately. And one of the women was asked when a, a packet of, of, and there were over 4,000 packets of about a pound each ah. in the vehicle spread throughout the floor of, the, of this 26 foot long, ah. you know, seven, eight meter long camper van. And this, this packet was put in front of her as, as you often see in, you know, in, in, in crime shows. Well, here are the drugs. What do you have to say? And Toddy, Vera Hayes, she said to the narc, I don't know what that is. And the narc says, well, that's the hashish that's in your camper van. And Toddy says, I wouldn't have a clue. I don't know what hashish is. I, I don't know what it looks like. It was still wrapped in a packet. And she said, well, what would you say if I told you there were over 4,000 more of these packets in your camper van? And the way the narc tells the story, the way Mish Curry is the name, the way the narc tells the story is Toddy looked at the, the, the packet, looked at her and said, no wonder that motherfucking van wouldn't go up those fucking hills. <laughs> quote, unquote. Okay. So that's what 1.9 tons of hash looks and Thank feels you. like. Yeah, now I'm getting yeah, a I'm vibe. Getting and also it answers the question of how on earth were they getting it around. Yeah. I get it. Sandy, so the women, Toddy and Floris, Floris, is it Floris? Floris Beezy. Yeah, Beezy was her nickname. Yep. So Vera and Floris, Toddy, Toddy and Beezy. They are going on, your book says, a trip of a lifetime. They're travelling from Germany to India in a camper van. But how do they end up in Australia? The, the, the title of the book, Betrayed, pretty much gives a sense for what's occurred. And so to get from Germany to what was then Bombay, now Mumbai, they were duped by Toddy, Vera's nephew, to deliver a camper van that he needed allegedly for a production company, a documentary he was making in the outback. And he had set the seed. He had started grooming them towards this outcome a year before they even left. And when they got to Mumbai, driving this camper van, they're 59 and 61. They're both strong women. They're outdoors people. They love an adventure. They've got their own motorhome in the United States. So it's not like they're unfamiliar with this sort of a lifestyle. But They've never been overseas in their lives before. Mm. This is a mighty big odyssey to set out on. And they get through nine countries by the time they get to Mumbai, to Bombay. And it's at that point, the arrangement was all expenses paid, trip of a lifetime, overseas holiday like you're never, ever going to imagine. It was basically out of the pages of National Geographic, which they were subscribers to. They get to Mumbai and they're done. They're shot. They're, like, yeah. Toddy is physically erect. And the nephew, Vern Todd, the nephew gets an associate to essentially put a gun to their head. <gasps> no. F figuratively. Yeah. 
figuratively. But, but, but they're threatening by that stage. It's no they're, longer. Oh, they're threatening. Oh. They're, they're, they're holding them to account. They're, they're, you, you will regret this for the rest of your life. You don't oh. know how big this is. Hang on, what's, what's going on? We were just driving a camper van for your documentary. What do you mean? And he says, you need to go to Melbourne because the carnet, which is the, the customs document that all film companies, people driving cars across borders need to sign, and it's affixed within a passport to this day, might be digital now, but it's a document that essentially says, I have come into this country with this asset. I have not disposed of it because if you were to sell your car, the, the state would want taxes for it. So you have to show you've driven the car into the country and you've driven it out. So the carnet was in Vera's name. The nephew had very craftily set it up at the start of the trip to get her to take the registration in her name, the carnet in her name, the insurance in her name. And they didn't, they didn't think twice about it. You know, they, they were pretty naive. So anyway, he threatened an associate of the, of, of the nephew, whom they don't know is in fact a drug kingpin, mm. who is moving massive amounts of very fine quality hashish, I'm told, into Australia. He gets one of his associates to threaten them and says, you've got to go to Australia and take delivery. Once you take delivery of the van, you're done. You can go home. Well, of course, that didn't happen. Mm. They fly to Australia. And so the nephew arranges for the shipment of the van while they're flying to Sydney, where ostensibly they're going to take delivery of the vehicle off a ship. He arranges shipment of it from Bombay to Sydney. Uh, they, they, they remain in situ in Sydney having a lovely little break. And they think after all, well, gee, this is not too bad. They, they, they tour the city. They go to the tennis. They, they rest. They see Yvonne, uh, Gulagong, Yvonne Coley oh, Gulagong. wonderful. Return, return to playing tennis after ah. having her first child. So, you know, it's, it's quite memorable. I can tell and, you now they're gay, by the way, Sandy. Yeah. But anyway, go on. <laughs> and, <laughs> I've and heard what, enough. They're writing postcards <laughs> home. They're saying to their friends, look, we're having an unexpected, holiday now in Australia and they're actually really enjoying it because yeah I can understand the drive because when you think about certainly the like the last half of the drive the first half of the drive is through Europe you know driving through Europe for these two American ladies is kind of familiar familiar it works but then after a certain point they're going through the Middle East which is going to be really challenging linguistically and and culturally in every way then they're driving through Asia which is like really challenging and then driving through India today is very very challenging and so and then they get to you know uh, Mumbai Bombay and they're threatened by some dude and this has just turned hideous but then Suddenly they're in Sydney and and they got nothing to do but relax and recuperate. So I can you can imagine how they're suddenly going, oh, this isn't so bad. This is okay. We were overreacting. You, 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 you've nailed it, Michelle. And 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 on that trip through the second part after after Europe, yeah, they're actually in Tehran oh, yeah. on the cusp on the cusp of the revolution. Of the revolution, of course. So as Americans, yeah, you in know, seventy in, oh, in seventy seven, yeah, when the, when the Shah's over to you know, like they're going through parts of the world that that you would never. <laughs> it was what was known as the hippie trail. Yeah. Let's be honest. Mm. In the seventies, you could take the magic bus out of London across Europe and Asia into the very place they they went on on their trip, and it was a hippie trail trip. It was a kind of alter, alternative holiday. But so they hit Sydney. And what they don't realize, because the, the nephew, this dude, is, is a real sharp operator. Uh, what they don't realize is the success that he has had over the years down under, because he's been gone 
from the family in Los Angeles. They, the, the Todd family, Vera's family, came from Los Angeles. The Todd family all understands that he's become a successful entrepreneur. He's an import-export. <laughs> they didn't know of what. <laughs> uh, he's, he's running a, a company selling tubby baths. It's a new innovation. It's basically a blow-up bath for babies that you can easily bathe them in. You know, he's, he's running ads, a new idea, Women's Weekly or Family Mag, you know, the equivalent in those days. And they they think, oh, this is great. You know, uh, nephew Vern has, has really landed on his feet. But it's when the real Vern shows, it's when, when he shows his true colors is, is in Sydney and things really start to fall apart. And for Vera, or for Toddy, as we, we called her, for Vera, it was a real deep hurt because to her family and kin was just the, the best, just so important. She came from a family of five. And, and her nephew, Vern, he was the first baby in the family. She left war service in, in uh, Midwest United States during the Second World War to come back to L.A. to visit her brother, who, who'd, who'd had, they'd had their first child. And she, she doted oh. on Vern. And to have him turn on her, oh. to betray her like this, and it's gradual. It's not just, I'm threatening you. It's not just, it's bigger than that. It's, oh, no, I'm, I'm going to win you back. I love you. I'm sorry. Oh, Auntie Vera this, Auntie Vera that. Uh, you know, one of the chapters in, in the book Betrayed is called Don't Auntie Me oh, no. because she finally gets sick and tired. But he's a schmoozer yeah. and he keeps winning them over. They have no idea that customs and narcotics uh, intelligence analysts have been monitoring Vern for quite some time, and they are looking for just this sort of vehicle oh. to come into the country. And who's going to collect this, it? Yeah, this they've struck gold with this. They've got no idea how much is in it, but they know he's, they know his modus operandi. They know he brings in cars, and so they had to flag the sorts of of of, of shipments of cargo that they were looking out for. They hit the mother load. Oh with the God! Camper van. Did they ever? And and. It's like my worst nightmare this happening to me. I saw Bangkok Hilton with yes. Nicole Kidman, terrified yes. me. But yes. two older women with a van, it, it's like the most amazing story. I can tell why you pulled that telex off and was like, wow. Yeah. This is, and you, fought, you basically reported on this the whole way through. You kept your eye on it. I, I did. Um, Emily, from, from the time that I returned, I was, I was working as a journalist, um, as a sub-editor, and I had a bit of spare time. I, I reached out to them. I wrote a letter to New South Wales Corrective Services Commission. And uh, I said, look, I'm, I'm interested in, in following up uh, two prisoners of yours. Um, is there any chance that I, can, I could visit them? Could, could you approach them on my behalf? Because I didn't even know what prison they were in. By the time you got back to Australia, 10 months later or something, it wasn't that long, had they been to court yet? Were, were yeah, they, so they, yeah. they, they'd been to court. They'd been sentenced. Oh, um, without, without, it was quick. It was a fairly quick, from, from the moment of arrest at the end of January... To, to sentencing in, in April. Oh, gosh. It was, it was a fairly brief time, but without, without spoiling too much yeah. for the readers, um, th they did plead guilty. Oh, they did please. plead guilty. And that, that, that then leads to the further perception, if not the reality, that they were betrayed. Because most, most people up on a charge of importing 1.9 tons of hashish <laughs> would probably try to you know, explain their, their position with a not guilty plea, like, especially in their case. The advice they got from their public defender, uh. <laughs> plead guilty, da, 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 
they, they had a really good relationship with the narcotics agents who'd busted them. They cooperated. But in the end, they, they had the book thrown at them. They had they, an unprecedented sentence of 14 years jail wow. with nothing on the bottom. Oh, no no non-parole period. The head sentence was the sentence. Do you think they would have been in danger from Toddy's nephew if they had said they, they were they, the whole wow. the whole time they were in jail the whole yeah. time they're in jail you, you so so there's this sense of betrayal clearly by the nephew Vern yeah. then a sense of oh hang on this is this wasn't the way it was explained to us it would go yeah. by the system and and the women they, they were they were lambs to the slaughter they'd never been they, like they'd had six speeding tickets between them <laughs> in 60 years so they had no idea about the system and so in the end, they had the book thrown at them. After the break, Sandy tells us about what life was like in prison for these most unlikely inmates. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. How would you like to look five years younger? In a clinical study, people that had volume added with Juvederm Voluma XC in the cheeks perceived themselves as looking five years younger at six months after treatment. Look younger, feel like you. Add volume for lift and contour in the cheeks with Juvederm Voluma XC. Reverse signs of aging by adding volume to smooth laugh lines with Juvederm Volure XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. Now, here's Sandy to tell us about Toddy and Beezy's life behind bars. They'd been uh, initially at Malawa. That's a tough prison. It is now and it was then in the, in, the, in the late 70s. And they could not believe what they were experiencing. They could not believe what 
prisoners inside, you know, got up to and the violence and the threats and, and what have you. And they were pretty tough. They were pretty tough gals. One of them, you know, was 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 in the Women's Air, uh, Army Corps and, 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 and was recruited to the LAPD. Mm. And, and the other that was Toddy and the other woman, Beezy, Florice, she worked on assembly lines for many years. She was as, as, as tough as they come when she needed to be. There's a great story in there about how they, they stood up to a gang inside one of the prisons. So when I tracked them down, they had since, they had by then been moved. This was, this was now, so I tracked, returned late 78. By 79, I've tracked them down. I go and visit them and they're now up at a new, it's almost like a prison farm in a small community called Tomago. Big smelter up there, uh, up on the, you know, near Newcastle. Mm-hmm. And it's uh, a farm out in the middle of nowhere. And it's just beautiful. You don't see any buildings. You see the bush. You see that. In fact, they didn't even lock the front gate. It, it was covered with mesh, not razor wire, nothing like that. These were all trusted prisoners. And they said, you know, it, it, it was probably really good for their mental health mm-hmm. to be in a prison like that because it wasn't like being in prison, but it was. And let me give you an example of the sorts of liberties that they lost, that they really noticed. And, and I very quickly became attuned to, because I, had, I hadn't had anything to do with prisoners. I hadn't been inside a prison before. So it was new to me. When I arrived, I used to visit them every weekend. Once I made contact, once we developed some trust, I'd visit them every weekend. I'd find a way in between my other commitments to get up to Tomago, uh, and then when they returned to Sydney, to the Sydney prison, to visit them there. So I got up to Tomago, visit, sat down in the, in the, like the mess, and as you would expect, the finest instant coffee international roast was there on the <laughs> oh, side with, a, with, with an urn of boiling water and a bit of coffee yep. and a bit of milk. And I said to the women, can I, can I go and get you a coffee? And they both said, sure. You know, nothing like having someone serve on you in prison. <laughs> so they both wanted milk and sugar. So I got their, their two mugs, you know, and I, I carried their, 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 their two mugs plus mine back, back to the table and sat down. And because I was carrying three mugs, I hadn't filled them right up. I, you know, I, I didn't want to be spilling. And I put them down in front of them. And Toddy looked up at me and she said, I asked for a full cup of coffee. Oh, so I went back, filled it right up and brought it back to her. And what that was, was her asserting some power, asserting her ability to tell me that this was what she wanted. Because you can't, as a prisoner, you don't have that right to tell, you know, if you do, you do it at the risk of getting a beating or a flogging or, or being, you know, being put into to, to isolate or whatever. And this was a very, very small thing. But I learned from that, that this is this is how disempowered they had become that being able to tell me I want a full cup of coffee and I coffee and I expect you to go back and get it for me was was a kind of a win for them I let them have that win every time and any time they wanted how were how were Toddy and Beasy going in terms of their mental health because they'd been through such an incredible trauma and it was all so unfair and they'd such a long stretch to go and and no one was helping them. In fairness, they had three kind of support groups working okay. for them. They had their lawyer yep. or lawyers in the end. They had a Christian cohort because, as you can expect, their faith uh, was probably the only thing that was a constant. And, and, and they really cleaved right. to that. So there was a Christian network of really supportive people. And then there was, there was me. There was this, this outlier, you know, journal guy that, that, that was trying to push every button and, and turn every knob and, and tap, knock on every door I could think of. But how were they going? You know, number one, the betrayal by Toddy's nephew just tore her apart. And, and she said 
a number of times that that it was so sickening, it was so hurtful that she had this hate for him that she had to find a way to to expunge it, to to get rid of it because it was tearing her apart. She couldn't live with such hatred. And what was the rest of the family doing, by the way? Like, how did everyone else sit? Because that's happened. So her best friend, Beezy, is in this situation because of her nephew and because of her love and trust in her nephew. And, you know, what what about his parents? What are they doing and saying about so, it? And th- this, is, this is the second part about how were they going in prison. Yeah. Toddy's two sisters were just wonderful. They regularly wrote. They would try and phone occasionally. They did lots of cassette tape letters in those days. Whereas her two brothers, one of whom was the father of the nephew who betrayed them, they basically had nothing to do with the women. One of them had the gall to say, well, that'll teach you. (gasps) No. Not in as many words, but that was essentially his attitude. And And the brother who was the father, who was also, the brother was named Vernon. Toddy felt so bad about what her brother's son had done that she she couldn't bring herself to confront him in a letter. She wrote to him a couple of times and he wrote a couple of times. But the pain that it caused her, she didn't want to inflict on others by saying, look at what your son has done to me and to my friend. It, It just, it tore her apart so much. So, the family, on one hand, the two sisters were just wonderful. They were there right to the end. They were there to welcome her home and, and Beezy home when they finally got out. But the, the brothers, I went over a couple of times knocking on doors around Washington, D.C. and other places to try and get some political support in the U.S. And on those two occasions that I was abroad and including visits to the United States, uh, neither of the brothers would see me. Whereas both of the sisters would. So they didn't have the family support while they were in jail. So how did they go? They struggled because they didn't have that. But the most important thing in in this space is that Beezy, who all along, right from the outset, when this proposition was put to them, I got a camper van, it's custom made, you're going to love it, can you deliver it? She said, I don't know, like, you don't get, you don't get something for nothing. Like, what's going, she always had a little sense, but she was faithful to Toddy. She said, you know, you know your family, you know your nephew. Beezy was the rock that kept Toddy sane, sometimes got her down off the the, the cliff, got got her down off the edge, Mm. and supported her all the way through. And, for example, the, the superintendent who was, in charge of the final prison, the acting superintendent, still alive today, and I've spoken to her in in writing the book. She says, unquestionably, if it were not for Beezy, Toddy would not have lasted uh, her her period of incarceration. Really? So Beezy never, did Beezy never turn? And in the sense of, oh, Toddy, I knew this was a bad idea if it wasn't for you and your terrible nephew and your dumb family. They a couple of times had sharp words on the road as they were as they were oh. in Bombay and 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 then when they were in Melbourne there was just something not right. There's just something, but in regardless of whether it was Beezy who had that sense of something just not right here or we're really in deep, I would suggest by the time they hit Australia, it was like they were in quicksand, but they were only on the edge of the quicksand. And each step, the classic, each step they took, 
the deeper in from which they could no longer extricate themselves. And there were listening devices in the van. There were tracking devices. There were helicopters in the... I mean, this was a brilliant operation. It was called Operation Genius. Wow. (laughs) Because this was going to be, as I suggested earlier, the mother load, if they could get to it. Because they were expecting, get this, they were expecting to pull out because they'd done drill samples under the van on board the ship before it was offloaded. And they each drill bit they pulled out, oh, the entire length of the floor of the van. They thought there must be 60 or 80 kilograms in this, <gasps> in this camper van. So it, it was the mother load. So, so I don't think, you know, Beezy wanted to end it. And at one point, Toddy said, well, you go home then. You, and and Beezy said, no, 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 I'm not leaving you. I'm not leaving you alone, like, you know. She was very faithful in that regard, very supportive. And, and Toddy's, Toddy's health wasn't 100% even when they started off. There was a beginning signs of a cataract. She'd had sciatic nerve issues. She'd had lumbar surgery, which was, she had a fall on the job. And that's why she'd retired early, uh, pensioned out, you know. And here she is stuck in a car. She did all the van driving. She was the driver. Beezy did the navigating. And by, by the time they got to Mumbai, it, it, was, it was not good. And her blood pressure were, you know, so there are all sorts of health issues that you get when you get older, but exacerbated by the pressure they were under. And then when they got to Australia, they just got themselves mired in deep. What can you tell us about that post-prison time in their lives when they, I guess, both went back to the States and what was waiting for them there? So by the time they did get out of jail, and they, and they didn't do the whole time, but they, they did significant period of jail time and got back to the United States. Times had changed. Society had moved on. Lapine, the small community from which they came, was no longer a small community. It had doubled, almost tripled in size. And I realized I flew back to join them, to help them resettle, drive a, a U-Haul van from where their goods were stored, settled them into their, their home, took them to get Toddy needed to get her driver's license, that sort of thing. I realized that as much as they valued all that had been done for them, as much as they valued their freedom now, in order for them to move on, we needed to cut the umbilical cord. I reminded them of Australia. I reminded them of their prison time. I reminded them of their struggle. I reminded them of the betrayal that they'd been through on so many levels. And, and in a way, I understood that because I, too, had to move on in, in my life. And I'd, I'd recently married. In fact, I'd, I'd put off my, my, my wedding date, <laughs> I, I, you know, because this, this, was, this was taking. T- so I, had, I also had to, to move on. So we, we reluctantly uh, agreed that, that they were going to write a book. They were going to tell their story. And they said, no, we, we just here. And they handed me their diaries. They handed me their audio cassette tapes. They handed me their photos, cards, letters. They said, we don't want to be reminded of this any longer here. So that was, that was one big step for them once they got out of jail, you know, in terms of adapting and, 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 and realizing that that what they'd hoped for, what their expectations were, were not going to quite come to fruition. And the other part was that their relationship remained strong, but some of the townsfolk never quite accepted them again. Yeah. 
Some of the locals weren't quite sure about them and, and their, their relationship and the basis for it then became a bit of tongue wagging fair in the community. And they didn't, sadly, they didn't stick around Lapine much longer. What you're saying, I just, it sort of circles back to how, where we started, which is, because I was sort of thinking without the internet being in existence in those days, um, and the other interesting thing is having tried to Google these women, there is nothing online about these women at all. So your book is really the only place we can read the story or see any of these photos or any of this. It's amazing what you've got. I, I was naively thinking maybe no one in their hometown would know what had happened to them because it was so far away from Australia, from where they went to jail, from where it all happened really, from the end of the story. So are you saying that everyone in their hometown knew that they had gone to jail in Australia for a drug crime. And also, was that when they started to suspect maybe that they were gay as well and all that their sexuality had become an issue during that time as well? So kind of and not quite. So right. um, when they were busted, when they yeah. were arrested and, and, and it made the news, they put Lapine on the map. Oh. And, and, and reporters flocked to Lapine oh, like there was no, no tomorrow. Right. So it was all over the shop. There were stories from all the neighbors, the friends. No, no one, no one in Lapine could believe it. No one could believe it, and they and they all said that. And and I've got all the clippings from that time from the local papers, from Australian papers. You know, even even the Mirror and the Sun, the two tabloids, the two afternoon tab, tabs in Sydney. They both sent reporters over oh. to, to to interview the locals. So it was it was a big yarn, a big story. Oh. So there was plenty there was plenty of coverage at the time when they returned. And I've since spoken to a couple of old timers in Lapine who knew the women. One of them was uh, an employer of Beezy. Beezy hated being unoccupied. So she worked in the, at the local hardware store assembling the power tools, the lawn mowing tools, the hedgers. And the other one uh, ran the laundromat because a lot of the homes in Lapine in the 70s, this is a small community to which the two women had more or less retired. Uh, and it was a you know small lumberjack community, but great fishing, great hiking. Uh, a lot of these people lived in what were mobile homes situated on a one-acre block. It wasn't it wasn't a trailer park. It wasn't yeah. a mobile home park. They were just mobile homes, and and not many, not not all of the mobile homes had a laundry. So the laundromat was a popular hangout. Yeah. So I spoke to these two women to to, to ask them, you know, what do you remember about the gals, and 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 what what can you tell me, and. They both remembered them fondly, but they both remembered them as being gay. And, and one of them said, I didn't pick it, but my sister, she knew right away. <laughs> but I didn't. It didn't matter to me. And yeah. uh, the, other, uh, the other one said, there was a bit of talk in town, but she never tried anything on me. And it was just <laughs> these classic American yeah. conservative, yeah. Uh, but, 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 but genuine, you yeah. know, heartfelt yeah. impressions. And even just because they said they knew what the basis of the relationship was, still doesn't, you know, it doesn't confirm anything to me no. that that was the perception, that was the belief. And again, I don't care. doesn't no. matter. Didn't matter to me then, doesn't matter to me now. I hate to ask this question, but when when did they pass away and what was what, what, what were the end of their days like? Well, Toddy, Toddy only lived a couple of years after freedom. Oh. Okay. Uh, she And, and Beezy was by her side. Yeah, of course. Beezy lived well into her 80s. She relocated back up to the, uh, the, the west coast of Washington State. Like they, they'd moved out of Lapine not long after they got back when it, 
it wasn't the place they they remembered and and there were other reasons which which I go into in the book why why they left why it was advantageous for them to get out of the the wet and the cold mm. but t- once once uh, toddy had passed Beezy relocated back up to um uh Washington state on the west coast where her sister and brother-in-law lived mm. and uh that's where she she lived her final days and Aww. and uh she 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 passed in the in the mid 90s so she at least did um you know have some some years of good health and i i in fact saw her well the whole family did the kids met her and and you know they they now all these years later saying oh that's who that was <laughs> sandy how did you move from your role? You're a journalist. You're obviously intrigued by this story, but you become an advocate. And, you know, you've written this book. It's 45 years since it happened. And you seem like the best person to tell this story. So how did you navigate that change from being a journalist where you've got this bloody awesome story, but also you're genuinely wanting to help these women? Like how did you manage those roles? Yeah, this is a tough one for me because – this, this period, the context, you know, late 70s, early 80s. This was a time when getting onto a good yarn was, was uppermost in terms of your editor or your producer. I, by this time, I was, I was a producer and researcher at Four Corners, and then I'd moved to producing morning radio with uh, the ABC with Caroline Jones and then Margaret Throsby. So I, I, I was, you know, I was working heavy-duty news every day, but having access to the women, as it were, and then determining just how big a challenge this was going to be didn't pose to me a conflict. And it certainly didn't seem to pose, you know, to my bosses that there was a conflict. But clearly there was. When I reflect now, there was clearly a conflict. How can you be a journalist while at the same time you're campaigning? And I must say, I I always declared that there was there was never a sense that oh I just happened to come across this story and uh, you know I've done it today and okay wipe my wash my hands move on to the, the next story the next day you know it was well known among media circles at the time that that I was associated quite closely with with the women and certainly among politicians and even then you know there were times I probably overstepped the mark and I might have approached a minister or or a diplomat or someone on the pretext of, of, of wanting to interview them for a story without also saying, because they may not have realized, oh, and by the way, by the way. So um, I don't think it, you, you would stand for it today. And I can understand that because the ethics. Uh, I think you were just pioneering magazine style journalism, really. I think you, I think did you an were amazing just, job. Yeah, I think you were just you did. a pioneer of a different style of journalism, don't you? Well, uh, I'm still troubled by it. I, I wasn't troubled by it then, but I'm troubled by it now. And, and, and this is a question I've, I've often thought that, you know, was, was this right? There, there was no deception. I wasn't betraying anyone. But, but I think that if you're going to be a journalist and you're going to maintain that, that objectivity and that um, detachment from becoming the story, then, then you, you, you have to do that. But if you want to become part of the story as an activist, as a campaigner, as someone who, then you, A, you need to declare that up front each and every time you're reporting. And B, you have to be really careful about the mark over which you might step. And, mm-hmm. and look, it, it's happened. The result was fantastic for the women. Yeah. I wouldn't have done it any differently. Let's say that. Look, even though uh, I said that, that one of the, the things that they 
needed was to cut the umbilical cord, you know, the figurative umbilical cord with me uh, once they got their freedom. We still kept in touch. We still wrote. We, 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 you know, we did Christmas cards. We'd occasionally be in touch. And, and, and even with her two sisters, with Toddy's two sisters, we kept in touch. And then when, even when Beezy passed all those years later, we kept in touch with her, her, her family, her, like her relatives. And to this day, I'm still in touch with many members of Beezy's offspring, like her sisters, her, her sisters and brothers offspring yeah. and Toddy's less so with Toddy's because the one mystery out of the book that that your listeners will 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 ponder over is Vern Todd the nephew was married in Australia and had two sons he fled Australia and abandoned them whatever happened to them how old would they be kids are in their 40s maybe even 50s now early 50s and the wife whom he I think eventually divorced, none of them will speak to me. And I, I don't want to visit the sins of the father on the two sons. It's not their fault. It's, it's got nothing. They're not responsible. And if his ex-wife doesn't want to talk about the time when, when this all occurred and she was present, mm. again, I don't want to visit the sins of, of her ex-husband no. on her. No. But um, they're all still alive. They're all... I think aware that the book is coming out because I approached Vern's ex-wife back in, in the 80s, in 83, 84, when I first had a crack at this manuscript. And then I approached her again when um, I had another crack at it and through an intermediary this t- the second time. And she, she, didn't, uh, she didn't want to talk. She didn't want to talk at all. So I, I respect that um, and, and, and I, I understand why. But that's a, that's a bit of a mystery. You you include some interesting little tidbits about Vern and and it's uh there's lots of great reasons for you to read this book because we have not scratched the surface. So thank you so much, thank Sandy. Thank you, Sandy. It's a, really a powerhouse. This book yeah. of research and and perseverance. It's yes. like the story of a lifetime. This and is what every journalist dreams it is. of. And dedication to these two beautiful ladies. Wonderful. Yeah. Look, we learned something. We learned about other people. There's beautiful people in prison, and I don't care what anybody says. I've seen beautiful people in prison. Some of them I prefer to a lot of people on the outside that think they're just so sanctimonious. We've seen beautiful women. No way am I ever... I'm not sorry. I learned something. Thanks to our guest, Sandy Logan. His book, Betrayed, is published by Hachette. Grab a copy. It's an extraordinary read. And thank you for downloading this episode of Australian True Crime, recorded at a Hub Australia media studio. HubAustralia.com. Find the workspace that's right for you. This has been another Smartfella production in conjunction with the Acast Creator Network. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. 
As promised, I am thrilled to announce that our tickets for Australian True Crime Live are now available. Join me in Sydney, Brisbane and or Melbourne this July. You can come to all three if you want. These tickets are expected to go very quickly, so be sure to secure yours by visiting the link in our podcast bio or you can head over to the Australian True Crime Facebook page. There'll be a nice link there for you. Update for Brisbane Australian True Crime fans. Brisbane is almost fully sold out for our live show. If you've been a listener for any length of time, you'll know how passionate I am about true crime stories from Australia. I'm looking very forward to an incredible evening together with you, sharing these captivating tales. We will have great guests as well, so, you know, we love a Q&A. If you've ever come along to an Australian true crime live gig, you'll know we love a Q&A with our guests. Don't miss out. Book your tickets today, and I'll see you in July for a memorable night out.